Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well Told Tale. Every week we bring to life the greatest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. The Well Told Tale is now available as both a podcast and on YouTube, as well as being available early for my patrons every week over on Patreon.com. There's a link in the description if you're interested in that, or getting access to some stories I record just for my patrons. We have now reached the final part of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. The Invisible Man, Griffin, is now finishing off his tale of how he became invisible, and what he did then, describing it in detail to Dr. Kemp, his old university acquaintance. His story is getting darker. What will he do next, and what will Kemp do, trapped in his own house with the Invisible Man? So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Chapter 23 In Drury Lane But you begin now to realise, said the Invisible Man, the full disadvantage of my condition. I had no shelter, no covering. To get clothing was to forego all my advantage, to make myself a strange and terrible thing. I was fasting, for to eat, to fill myself with unassimilated matter, would be to become grotesquely visible again. I never thought of that, said Kemp, nor had I, and the snow had warned me of other dangers— I could not go abroad in snow. It would settle on me and expose me. Rain, too, would make me a watery outline, a glistening surface of a man, and a bubble. And fog. I should be like a fainter bubble in a fog, a surface, a greasy glimmer of humanity. Moreover, as I went abroad, in the London air, I gathered dirt about my ankles, floating smuts and dust upon my skin— I did not know how long it would be before I should become visible from that cause alone, but I saw clearly it would not be for long. Not in London, at any rate. I went into the slums towards Great Portland Street, and found myself at the end of the street in which I had lodged. I did not go that way because of the crowd halfway down it opposite to the still-smoking ruins of the house I had fired. My most immediate problem was to get clothing. What to do with my face puzzled me. Then I saw in one of those little miscellaneous shops, news, sweets, toys, stationery, belated Christmas tomfoolery and so forth, an array of masks and nose. I realised that problem was solved. In a flash, I saw my course. I turned about, no longer aimless, and went, circuitously in order to avoid the busy ways, towards the back streets north of the Strand. For I remembered, though not very distinctly where, that some theatrical costumiers had shops in that district. The day was cold, with a nipping wind down the northward running streets. I walked fast to avoid being overtaken. Every crossing was a danger, every passenger a thing to watch alertly. One man, as I was about to pass him at the top of Bedford Street, turned upon me abruptly and came into me, sending me into the road and almost under the wheel of a passing hansom. The verdict of the cab rank was that he had had some sort of stroke. I was so unnerved by this encounter that I went into Covent Garden Market and sat down for some time in a quiet corner by a stall of violets panting and trembling. I found I had caught a fresh cold, and had to turn out after a time lest my sneezes should attract attention. At last I reached the object of my quest, a dirty, fly-blown little shop in a byway near Drury Lane, with a window full of tinsel robes, sham jewels, wigs, slippers, dominoes and theatrical photographs. 
The shop was old-fashioned and low and dark, and the house rose above it for four stories, dark and dismal. I peered through the window, and seeing no one within, entered. The opening of the door set a clanking bell ringing. I left it open and walked round a bare costume stand into a corner behind a Chevelle glass. For a minute or so, no one came. Then I heard heavy feet striding across a room, and a man appeared down the shop. My plans were now perfectly definite. I proposed to make my way into the house, secrete myself upstairs, watch my opportunity, and when everything was quiet, rummage out a wig, mask, spectacles and costume, and go into the world, perhaps a grotesque, but still a credible figure. And incidentally, of course, I could rob the house of any available money. The man who had just entered the shop was a short, slight, hunched, beetle-browned man with long arms and very short, bandy legs. Apparently I had interrupted a meal. He stared about the shop with an expression of expectation. This gave way to surprise and then to anger as he saw the shop empty. Damn the boys, he said. He went to stare up and down the street. He came in again in a minute, kicked the door with his foot spitefully and went muttering back to the house door. I came forward to follow him, and at the noise of my movement he stopped dead. I did so too, startled by his quickness of ear. He slammed the house door in my face. I stood hesitating. Suddenly I heard his quick footsteps returning and the door reopening. He stood looking about the shop like one who was still not satisfied. Then, murmuring to himself, he examined the back of the counter and peered behind some fixtures. Then he stood doubtful. He had left the house door open, and I slipped into the inner room. It was a queer little room, poorly furnished and with a number of big masks in the corner. On the table was his belated breakfast, and it was a confoundedly exasperating thing for me, Kemp, to have to sniff his coffee and stand watching while he came in and resumed his meal. And his table manners were irritating. Three doors opened into the little room, one going upstairs and one down, but they were all shut. I could not get out of the room while he was there. I could scarcely move because of his alertness, and there was a draught down my back. Twice I strangled a sneeze just in time. The spectacular quality of my sensations was curious and novel, but for all that I was heartily tired and angry long before he had done his eating. But at last he made an end, and putting his beggarly crockery on the black tin tray upon which he had had his teapot, and gathering all the crumbs up on the mustard-stained cloth, he took the whole lot of things after him. His burden prevented his shutting the door behind him, as he would have done. I never saw such a man for shutting doors, and I followed him into a very dirty underground kitchen and scullery. I had the pleasure of seeing him begin to wash up, and then, finding no good in keeping down there, and the brick floor being cold on my feet, I returned upstairs and sat in his chair by the fire. It was burning low, and scarcely thinking, I put on a little coal. The noise of this brought him up at once, and he stood aglare. He peered about the room and was within an ace of touching me. Even after that examination, he scarcely seemed satisfied. He stopped in the doorway and took a final inspection before he went down. I waited in the little parlour for an age, and at last he came up and opened the upstairs door. I just managed to get by him. On the staircase, he stopped suddenly, so that I very nearly blundered into him. He stood looking back right into my face and listening. I could have sworn, he said. His long, hairy hand pulled at his lower lip. His eye went up and down the staircase. 
Then he grunted and went on up again. His hand was on the handle of a door, and then he stopped again with the same puzzled anger on his face. He was becoming aware of the faint sounds of my movements about him. A man must have had diabolically acute hearing. He suddenly flashed into rage. If there's anyone in this house, he cried with an oath, and left the threat unfinished. He put his hand in his pocket, failed to find what he wanted, and rushing past me went blundering noisily and pugnaciously downstairs, but I did not follow him. I sat on the head of the staircase until his return. Presently he came up again, still muttering. He opened the door of his room, and before I could enter, slammed it in my face. I resolved to explore the house, and spent some time in doing so as noiselessly as possible. The house was very old and tumbled down, damp so that the paper in the attics was peeling from the walls and rat-infested. Some of the door handles were stiff and I was afraid to turn them. Several rooms I did inspect were unfurnished, and others were littered with theatrical lumber, bought second-hand, I judged from its appearance. In one room next to his, I found a lot of old clothes. I began routing among these, and in my eagerness forgot again the evident sharpness of his ears. I heard a stealthy footstep, and, looking up just in time, saw him peering in at the tumbled heap and holding an old-fashioned revolver in his hand. I stood perfectly still while he stared about, open-mouthed and suspicious. "'It must have been her,' he said slowly. "'Damn her!' He shut the door quietly, and immediately I heard the key turn in the lock. Then his footsteps retreated. I realised abruptly that I was locked in. For a minute I did not know what to do. I walked from door to window and back and stood perplexed. A gust of anger came upon me. But I decided to inspect the clothes before I did anything further, and my first attempt brought down a pile from an upper shelf. This brought him back more sinister than ever. That time he actually touched me, jumping back with amazement, and stood astonished in the middle of the room. Presently he calmed a little. Rats, he said in an undertone, fingers on lips. He was evidently a little scared. I edged quietly out of the room, but a plank creaked. Then the infernal little brute started going over all the house, revolver in hand, locking door after door and pocketing the keys. When I realised what he was up to, I had a fit of rage. I could hardly control myself sufficiently to watch my opportunity. By this time, I knew that he was alone in the house, and so I made no more ado, but knocked him on the head. "'Knocked him on the head?' exclaimed Kemp. "'Yes. Stunned him as he was going downstairs, hit him from behind with a stool that stood on the landing. He went downstairs like a bag of old boots.' I say, the common conventions of humanity are all very well for common people, but the point was, Kemp, that I had to get out of that house in a disguise without his seeing me. I couldn't think of any other way of doing it. And then I gagged him with a Louis Couture's vest and tied him up in a sheet. Tied him up in a sheet? Made a sort of bag of it. It was rather a good idea to keep the idiot scared and quiet, and a devilish hard thing to get out of, head away from the string. My dear Kemp, it's no good your sitting glaring as though I was a murderer. It had to be done. He had his revolver. If once he saw me, he would be able to describe me. But still, said Kemp, in England, today, and the man was in his own house, and you were, well, robbing. Robbing? Confound it! You'll call me a thief next! Surely, Kemp, you're not fool enough to dance on the old strings. Can't you see my position? And his, too, said Kemp. And the invisible man stood up sharply. What do you mean to say? 
Kemp's face grew a trifle hard. He was about to speak, but checked himself. I... I suppose, after all, he said with a sudden change of manner, the thing had to be done. You were in a fix, but still. Of course I was in a fix, an infernal fix, and he made me wild, too, hunting me about the house, fooling about with his revolver, locking and unlocking doors. He was simply exasperating. You didn't blame me, do you? You don't blame me, do you? I never blame anyone, said Kemp. It's quite out of fashion. What did you do next? I was hungry. Downstairs I found a loaf and some rank cheese, more than sufficient to satisfy my hunger. I took some brandy and water, and then went up past my impromptu bag. He was lying quite still, to the room containing the old clothes. This looked out upon the street, two lace curtains brown with dirt guarding the window. I went and peered out. Outside, the day was bright, by contrast with the brown shadows of the dismal house in which I found myself, dazzlingly bright. A brisk traffic was going by, fruit carts, a hansom, a four-wheeler with a pile of boxes, a fishmonger's cart. I turned with spots of colour swimming before my eyes to the shadowy fixtures behind me. My excitement was giving place to a clear apprehension of my position again. The room was full of a faint scent of benzoline, used, I suppose, in cleaning the garments. I began a systematic search of the place. I should judge the hunchback had been alone in the house for some time. He was a curious person. Everything that could possibly be of service to me I collected in the clothes storeroom, and then I made a deliberate selection. I found a handbag I thought a passable possession, and some powder, rouge, and a sticking plaster. I had thought of painting and powdering my face and all that there was to show of me in order to render myself visible, but the disadvantage of this lay in the fact that I should require turpentine and other appliances and a considerable amount of time before I could vanish again. Finally, I chose a mask of the better type, slightly grotesque, but not more so than many human beings, dark glasses, greyish whiskers, and a wig. I could find no underclothing, but that I could buy subsequently, and for the time I swathed myself in calico dominoes and some white cashmere scarves. I could find no socks, but the hunchback's boots were a rather loose fit and sufficed. In a desk in the shop were three sovereigns and about thirty shillings worth of silver, and in a locked cupboard I burst in the inner room were eight pounds in gold. I could go forth into the world again, equipped. Then came a curious hesitation. Was my appearance really credible? I tried myself with a little bedroom looking-glass, inspecting myself from every point of view to discover any forgotten chink, but it all seemed sound. I was grotesque to the theatrical pitch, a stage miser, but I was certainly not a physical impossibility. Gathering confidence, I took my looking-glass down into the shop, pulled down the sharp blinds, and surveyed myself from every point of view with the help of the Chevelle glass in the corner. I spent some minutes screwing up my courage and then unlocked the shop door and marched out into the street, leaving the little man to get out of his sheet again when he liked. In five minutes, a dozen turnings intervened between me and the costumier's shop. No one appeared to notice me very pointedly. My last difficulty seemed overcome. He stopped again. "'And you troubled no more about the hunchback?' said Kemp. "'No,' said the Invisible Man, "'nor have I heard what became of him. I suppose he untied himself or kicked himself out. The knots were pretty tight.' He became silent and went to the window and stared out. "'What happened when you went out onto the Strand?' "'Oh, disillusionment again. I thought my troubles were over.' 
Practically, I thought I had impunity to do whatever I chose, everything, save to give away my secret. So I thought. Whatever I did, whatever the consequences might be, was nothing to me. I had merely to fling aside my garments and vanish. No person could hold me. I could take my money where I found it. I decided to treat myself to a sumptuous feast, and then put up at a good hotel, and accumulate a new outfit of property. I felt amazingly confident. It's not particularly pleasant recalling that I was an ass. I went into a place and was already ordering lunch, when it occurred to me that I could not eat unless I exposed my invisible face. I finished ordering the lunch, told the man I should be back in ten minutes, and went out exasperated. I don't know if you have ever been disappointed in your appetite. Not quite so badly, said Kemp, but I can imagine it. I could have smashed the silly devils. At last, faint with the desire for tasteful food, I went into another place and demanded a private room. I am disfigured, I said, badly. They looked at me curiously, but of course it was not their affair, so at last I got my lunch. It was not particularly well served, but it sufficed, and when I had had it, I sat over a cigar, trying to plan my line of action, and outside a snowstorm was beginning. The more I thought it over, Kemp, the more I realised what a helpless absurdity an invisible man was, in a cold and dirty climate in a crowded civilised city. Before I made this mad experiment, I had dreamed of a thousand advantages. That afternoon, it all seemed disappointment. I went over the heads of the things a man reckons desirable. No doubt invisibility made it possible to get them, but it made it impossible to enjoy them when they are got. Ambition. What is the good of pride of place when you cannot appear there? What is the good of the love of a woman when her name must needs be Delilah? I have no taste for politics, for the blackguardisms of fame, for philanthropy, for sport. What was I to do? And for this... I had become a wrapped-up mystery, a swathed and bandaged caricature of a man. He paused, and his attitude suggested a roving glance at the window. But how did you get to Iping? said Kemp, anxious to hear his guest busy talking. I went there to work. I had one hope. It was a half-idea. I still have it. It is a full-blown idea now. A way of getting back, of restoring what I have done, when I choose, when I have done all I mean to do invisibly, and that is what I chiefly want to talk to you about now. You went straight to Iping? Yes. I had simply to get my three volumes of memoranda and my cheque-book, my luggage and underclothing, order a quantity of chemicals to work out this idea of mine. I will show you the calculations as soon as I get my books, and then I started. Jove, I remember the snowstorm now, and the accursed bother it was to keep the snow from damping my pasteboard nose. At the end, said Kemp, the day before yesterday, when they found you out, you rather... to judge by the papers. I did. Rather. Did I kill that fool of a constable? No, said Kemp. He's expected to recover. That's his luck, then. I clean lost my temper, the fools. Why couldn't they leave me alone? And that... Grosser lout. There are no deaths expected, said Kemp. I don't know about that tramp of mine, said the invisible man with an unpleasant laugh. By heaven, Kemp, you don't know what rage is to have worked for years, to have planned and plotted, and then to get some fumbling idiot messing across your course. Every conceivable sort of silly creature that has ever been created has been sent to cross me. If I have much more of it, I shall go wild. I shall start mowing them down. As it is, they've made things a thousand times more difficult.
No doubt it's exasperating, said Kemp dryly. Chapter 24 The Plan That Failed But now, said Kemp with a side glance out of the window, what are we to do? He moved nearer his guest as he spoke in such a manner as to prevent the possibility of a sudden glimpse of the three men who were advancing up the hill road with an intolerable slowness, as it seemed to Kemp. What were you planning to do when you were heading for Port Burdock? Had you any plan? I was going to clear out of the country, but I have altered that plan rather since seeing you. I thought it would be wise, now the weather is hot and invisibility possible, to make for the south, especially as my secret was known and everyone would be on the lookout for a masked and muffled man. You have a line of steamers from here to France. My idea was to get aboard one and run the risks of the passage. Thence I could go by train to Spain or else get to Algiers. It would not be difficult. There a man might always be invisible, and yet live, and do things. I was using that tramp as a money box and a luggage carrier until I decided how to get my books and things sent over to meet me. That's clear. And then the filthy brute must needs try and rob me. He has hidden my books, Kemp. Hidden my books! If I can lay my hands on him. Best plan to get the books out of him first. But where is he? Do you know? He's in the town police station, locked up, by his own request, in the strongest cell in the place. Cur, said the invisible man. But that hangs up your plans a little. We must get those books. Those books are vital. Certainly, said Kemp a little nervously, wondering if he heard footsteps outside. Certainly we must get those books, but that won't be difficult if he doesn't know they're for you. No, said the invisible man, and thought. Kemp tried to think of something to keep the talk going, but the invisible man resumed of his own accord. Blundering into your house, Kemp, he said, changes all my plans, for you are a man that can understand, in spite of all that has happened, in spite of this publicity, of the loss of my books, of what I have suffered, there still remain great possibilities, huge possibilities. You have told no one I am here, he asked abruptly. Kemp hesitated. That was implied, he said. No one, insisted Griffin, not a soul. Ah, now. The invisible man stood up, and sticking his arms akimbo began to pace the study. I made a mistake, Kemp, a huge mistake, in carrying this thing through alone. I have wasted strength, time, opportunities, alone. It is wonderful how little a man can do alone. To rob a little, to hurt a little, and there is the end. What I want, Kemp, is a goalkeeper, a helper, and a hiding place, an arrangement whereby I can sleep and eat and rest in peace, and unsuspected. I must have a confederate, with a confederate with food and rest. A thousand things are possible. Hitherto I have gone on vague lines. We have to consider all that invisibility means, all that it does not mean. It means little advantage for eavesdropping and so forth. One makes sound. A little help, perhaps, in housebreaking and so forth. Once you've caught me, you could easily imprison me, but on the other hand, I am hard to catch. This invisibility, in fact, is only good in two cases. It's useful in getting away. It's useful in approaching. 
It's particularly useful, therefore, in killing. I can walk around a man, whatever weapon he has, choose my point, strike as I like, dodge as I like, escape as I like. Kemp's hand went to his moustache. Was that a movement downstairs? And it is killing we must do, Kemp. It is killing we must do, repeated Kemp. I'm listening to your plan, Griffin. I'm not agreeing, mind. Why killing? Not wanton killing, but a judicious slaying. The point is, they know there is an invisible man, as well as we know there is an invisible man. And that invisible man, Kemp, must now establish a reign of terror. Yes, no doubt it's startling. But I mean it, a reign of terror. He must take some town like your burdock and terrify and dominate it. He must issue his orders. He can do that in a thousand ways. Scraps of paper thrust under doors would suffice. And all who disobey his orders... He must kill, and kill all who would defend them. Humph, said Kemp, no longer listening to Griffin, but to the sound of his front door opening and closing. It seems to me, Griffin, he said to cover his wandering attention, that your confederate would be in a difficult position. No one would know he was a confederate, said the invisible man eagerly, and then suddenly, hush, what's that downstairs? Uh, Nothing, said Kemp, and suddenly began to speak loud and fast. I don't agree to this, Griffin, he said. Understand me, I don't agree to this. Why dream of playing a game against the race? How can you hope to gain happiness? Don't be a lone wolf. Publish your results. Take the world, take the nation at least, into your confidence. Think what you might do with a million helpers. The invisible man interrupted, arm extended. There are footsteps coming upstairs he said in a low voice. Nonsense, said Kemp. Let me see, said the invisible man, and advanced, arm extended to the door. And then things happened very swiftly. Kemp hesitated for a second, and then moved to intercept him. The invisible man started and stood still. Traitor! cried the voice. Suddenly the dressing gown opened, and sitting down, the unseen began to disrobe. Kemp made three swift steps to the door, and forthwith the invisible man, his legs had vanished, sprang to his feet with a shout. Kemp flung the door open. As it opened, there came the sound of hurrying feet downstairs and voices. With a quick movement, Kemp thrust the invisible man back, sprang aside, and slammed the door. The key was outside and ready. In another moment, Griffin would have been alone in the Belvedere study, a prisoner, save for one little thing. The key had been slipped in hastily that morning. As Kemp slammed the door, it fell noisily upon the carpet. Kemp's face became white. He tried to grip the door handle with both hands. For a moment he stood, lugging. Then the door gave six inches, but he got it closed again. The second time it jerked a foot wide and the dressing gown came wedging itself into the opening. His throat was gripped by invisible fingers and he left his hold on the handle to defend himself. He was forced back, tripped and pitched heavily into the corner of the landing. The empty dressing gown was flung on top of him. Halfway up the staircase was Colonel Adyer, the recipient of Kemp's letter, the chief of the Burdock Police. He was staring aghast at the sudden appearance of Kemp, followed by the extraordinary sight of clothing tossing empty in the air. He saw Kemp felled and struggling to his feet. He saw him rush forward and go down again, felled like an ox. Then suddenly he was struck violently by nothing. 
A vast weight, it seemed, leapt upon him, and he was hurled headlong down the staircase, with a grip on his throat and a knee in his groin. An invisible foot trod on his back, a ghostly patter passed downstairs. He heard the two police officers in the hall shout and run, and the front door of the house slammed violently. He rolled over and sat up, staring. He saw, staggering down the staircase, Kemp, dusty and dishevelled, one side of his face white from a blow, his lip bleeding, and a pink dressing gown and some underclothing held in his arm. "'My God!' cried Kemp. "'The game's up. He's gone.'" Chapter 25 The Hunting of the Invisible Man For a space, Kemp was too inarticulate to make Adya understand the swift things that had just happened. They stood on the landing, Kemp speaking swiftly, the grotesque swathings of Griffin still on his arm. But presently, Adya began to grasp something of the situation. He is mad, said Kemp, inhuman. He is pure selfishness. He thinks of nothing but his own advantage, his own safety. I have listened to such a story this morning of brutal self-seeking. He has wounded men. He will kill them unless we can prevent him. He will create a panic. Nothing can stop him. He is going out now, furious. He must be caught, said Adya. That is certain. But how? cried Kemp, and suddenly became full of ideas. You must begin at once. You must set every available man to work. You must prevent his leaving this district. Once he gets away, he may go through the countryside as he wills, killing and maiming. He dreams of a reign of terror. A reign of terror, I tell you. You must set a watch on trains and roads and shipping. The garrison must help. You must wire for help. The only thing that may keep him here is the thought of recovering some books of notes he counts of value. I will tell you of that. There is a man in your police station. Marvel. I know, said Adger. I know those books, yes, but the tramp says he hasn't them, but he thinks the tramp has and you must prevent him from eating or sleeping. Day and night the country must be astir for him. Food must be locked up and secured, all food, so that he will have to break his way to it. The houses everywhere must be barred against him. Heaven send us cold nights and rain. The whole countryside must begin hunting and keep hunting. I tell you, Adya, he's a danger, a disaster, unless he is pinned and secured. It is frightful to think of the things that may happen. But what else can we do? said Adya. I must go down at once and begin organising, but why not come? Yes, you come too. Come, and we must hold a sort of council of war. Get hops to help, and the railway managers. By Jove, it's urgent. Come along, tell me as we go. What else is there we can do? Put that stuff down. In another moment, Adya was leading the way downstairs. They found the front door open, and the policeman standing outside, staring at empty air. He's got away, sir, said one. We must go to the central station at once, said Adya. One of you go on down and get a cab to come up and meet us, quickly. And now, Kemp, what else? Dogs, said Kemp. Get dogs. They don't see him, but they wind him. Get dogs. Good, said Adya. It's not generally known, but the prison officials over at Halstead know a man with bloodhounds. Dogs. What else? Bear in mind, said Kemp, his food shows. After eating, his food shows until it is assimilated, so that he has to hide after eating. You must keep on beating every thicket, every quiet corner, and put all weapons, all implements that might be weapons, away. He can't carry such things for long, 
and what he can snatch up and strike men with must be hidden away. Good again, said Adya, we shall have him yet. And on the roads, said Kemp, and hesitated. Yes, said Adya. Powdered glass, said Kemp. It's cruel, I know, but think of what he may do. Adya drew the air in sharply between his teeth. It's unsportsmanlike, I don't know, but I'll have powdered glass got ready. If he goes too far, the man's become inhuman, I tell you, said Kemp, and I am as sure he will establish a reign of terror, so soon as he's got over the emotions of this escape, as I am sure I am talking to you. Our only chance is to be ahead. He has cut himself off from his kind. His blood will be upon his own head. Chapter 26. The Wicksteed Murder The Invisible Man seems to have rushed out of Kemp's house in a state of blind fury. A little child playing near Kemp's gateway was violently caught up and thrown aside so that its ankle was broken, and thereafter for some hours the Invisible Man passed out of human perceptions. No one knows where he went nor what he did but one can imagine him hurrying through the hot June forenoon, up the hill and onto the open downland behind Port Burdock, raging and despairing at his intolerable fate, and sheltering at last, heated and weary, amid the thickets of Hintondean, to piece together again his shattered schemes against his species. That seems the most probable refuge for him, for there it was he reasserted himself in a grimly tragical manner about two in the afternoon. One wonders what his state of mind may have been during that time, and what plans he devised. No doubt he was almost ecstatically exasperated by Kemp's treachery, and though we may be able to understand the motives that led to that deceit, we may still imagine and even sympathise a little with the fury the attempted surprise must have occasioned. Perhaps something of the stunned astonishment of his Oxford Street experiences may have returned to him, for he had evidently counted on Kemp's cooperation in his brutal dream of a terrorised world. At any rate, he vanished from human ken about midday, and no living witness can tell you what he did until about half-past two. It was a fortunate thing, perhaps, for humanity, but for him it was a fatal inaction. During that time, a growing multitude of men scattered over the countryside were busy. In the morning he had still been simply a legend, a terror, in the afternoon, by virtue chiefly of Kemp's dryly worded proclamation, he was presented as a tangible antagonist to be wounded, captured or overcome, and the countryside began organising itself with inconceivable rapidity. By two o'clock, even he might still have removed himself out of the district by getting aboard a train, but after two, that became impossible. Every passenger train along the lines on a great parallelogram between Southampton, Manchester, Brighton and Horsham travelled with locked doors, and the goods traffic was almost entirely suspended. And in a great circle of twenty miles around Port Burdock, men armed with guns and bludgeons were presently setting out in groups of three and four with dogs to beat the roads and fields. Mounted policemen rode along the country lanes, stopping at every cottage and warning the people to lock up their houses and keep indoors unless they were armed, and all the elementary schools had broken up by three o'clock, and the children, scared and keeping together in groups, were hurrying home. Kemp's proclamation, signed indeed by Adya, was posted over almost the whole district by four or five o'clock in the afternoon. It gave briefly but clearly all the conditions of the struggle, the necessity of keeping the invisible man from food and sleep, the necessity for incessant watchfulness, and for a prompt attention to any evidence of his movements. 
and so swift and decided was the action of the authorities, so prompt and universal was the belief in this strange being, that before nightfall an area of several hundred square miles was in a stringent state of siege, and before nightfall too a thrill of horror went through the whole watching nervous countryside, going from whispering mouth to mouth, swift and certain over the length and breadth of the country, past the story of the murder of Mr Wicksteed. If our supposition that the Invisible Man's refuge was in the Hintendine thickets, then we must suppose that in the early afternoon he sallied out again, bent upon some project that involved the use of a weapon. We cannot know what the project was, but the evidence that he had had the iron rod in hand before he met Wicksteed is to me at least overwhelming. Of course, we can know nothing of the details of that encounter. It incurred on the edge of a gravel pit, not two hundred yards from Lord Burdock's lodge gate. Everything points to a desperate struggle. The trampled ground, the numerous wounds Mr Wicksteed received, his splintered walking stick. But why the attack was made, save in a murderous frenzy, it is impossible to imagine. Indeed, the theory of madness is almost unavoidable. Mr Wicksteed was a man of forty-five or forty-six, steward to Lord Burdock, of inoffensive habits and appearance, the very last person in the world to provoke such a terrible antagonist. Against him, it would seem, the invisible man used an iron rod dragged from a broken piece of fence. He stopped this quiet man, going quietly home to his midday meal, attacked him, beat down his feeble defences, broke his arm, felled him and smashed his head to a jelly. Of course, he must have dragged this rod out of the fencing before he met his victim. He must have been carrying it ready in his hand. Only two details beyond what has already been stated seem to bear on this matter. One is the circumstance that the gravel pit was not in Mr Wicksteed's direct path home, but nearly a couple of hundred yards out of his way. The other is the assertion of a little girl, to the effect that, going to her afternoon school, she saw the murdered man trotting in a peculiar manner across a field towards the gravel pit. Her pantomime of his actions suggests a man pursuing something on the ground before him and striking at it ever and again with his walking stick. She was the last person to see him alive. He passed out of her sight to his death, the struggle being hidden from her only by a clump of beech trees and a slight depression in the ground. Now this, to the present writer's mind at least, lifts the murder out of the realm of the absolutely wanton, we may imagine that Griffin had taken the rod as a weapon indeed, but without any deliberate intention of using it in a murder. Wicksteed may then have come by and noticed this rod inexplicably moving through the air. Without any thought of the invisible man, for Port Burdock is ten miles away, he may have pursued it. It is quite conceivable that he may not have even heard of the invisible man. One can then imagine the invisible man making off quietly in order to avoid discovering his presence in the neighbourhood, and Wicksteed, excited and curious, pursuing this unaccountably locomotive object, finally striking at it. No doubt the invisible man could easily have distanced his middle-aged pursuer under ordinary circumstances, but the position in which Wicksteed's body was found suggests that he had the ill luck to drive his quarry into a corner between a drift of stinging nettles and the gravel pit. To those who appreciate the extraordinary irascibility of the Invisible Man, the rest of the encounter will be easy to imagine. But this is pure hypothesis. The only undeniable facts, for stories of children are often unreliable, are the discovery of Wicksteed's body, done to death, and of the blood-stained iron rod flung among the nettles. 
The abandonment of the rod by Griffin suggests that in the emotional excitement of the affair, the purpose for which he took it, if he had a purpose, was abandoned. He was certainly an intensely egotistical and unfeeling man, but the sight of his victim, his first victim, bloody and pitiful at his feet, may have released some long-pent fountain of remorse, which for a time may have flooded whatever scheme of action he had contrived. After the murder of Mr Wicksteed, he would have seemed to have struck across the country towards the downland. There is a story of a voice heard about sunset by a couple of men in a field near Fern Bottom. It was wailing and laughing, sobbing and groaning, and ever and again it shouted. It must have been a queer hearing. It drove up across the middle of a clover field and died away towards the hills. That afternoon, the invisible man must have learnt something of the rapid use Kemp had made of his confidences. He must have found houses locked and secured. He may have loitered about railway stations and prowled about inns, and no doubt he read the proclamations and realised something of the nature of the campaign against him. And as the evening advanced, the fields became dotted here and there with groups of three or four men, and noisy with the yelping of dogs. These men-hunters had particular instructions in the case of an encounter as to the way they should support one another. But he avoided them all. We may understand something of his exasperation, and it could have been nonetheless because he himself had supplied the information that was being used so remorselessly against him. For that day at least, he lost heart. For nearly twenty-four hours, save when he turned on Wicksteed, he was a hunted man. In the night he must have eaten and slept, for in the morning he was himself again, active, powerful, angry and malignant, prepared for his last great struggle against the world. Chapter 27 The Siege of Kemp's House Kemp read a strange missive written in pencil on a greasy sheet of paper. You have been amazingly energetic and clever, this letter ran, though what you stand to gain by it I cannot imagine. You are against me. For a whole day you have chased me. You have tried to rob me of a night's rest. But I have had food in spite of you. I have slept in spite of you. And the game is only beginning. The game is only beginning. There is nothing for it but to start the terror. This announces the first day of the terror. Port Burdock is no longer under the Queen. Tell your Colonel of Police and tell the rest of them it is under me. The terror. This is day one of year one of the new epoch. The epoch of the Invisible Man. I am Invisible Man the first. To begin with, the rule will be easy. The first day there will be one execution for the sake of example, a man named Kemp. Death starts for him today. He may lock himself away, hide himself away, get guards about him, put on armour if he likes. Death, the unseen death, is coming. Let him take precautions, it will impress my people. Death starts from the pillar box by midday. The letter will fall in as the postman comes along, then... Off the game begins, death starts. Help him not, my people, lest death fall upon you also. Today, Kemp is to die. Kemp read this letter twice. It's no hoax, he said. That's his voice, and he means it. He turned the folded sheet over and saw on the addressed side of it the postmark Hintondine and the prosaic detail, two pence to pay. 
He got up slowly, leaving his lunch unfinished. The letter had come by the one o'clock post and went into his study. He rang for his housekeeper and told her to go round the house at once, examining all the fastenings of the windows and close all the shutters. He closed the shutters of his study himself. From a locked drawer in his bedroom he took a little revolver, examined it carefully and put it into the pocket of his lounge jacket. He wrote a number of brief notes, one to Colonel Adyer, gave them to his servant to take with explicit instructions as to her way of leaving the house. There is no danger, he said, and added a mental reservation to you. He remained meditative for a space after doing this and then returned to his cooling lunch. He ate with gaps of thought. Finally, he struck the table sharply. We will have him, he said, and I am the bait. He will come too far. He went up to the Belvedere, carefully shutting every door after him. It's a game, he said, an odd game, but the chances are all for me, Mr. Griffin, in spite of your invisibility. Griffin contra mundum, with a vengeance. He stood at the window, staring at the hot hillside. He must get food every day, and I don't envy him. Did he really sleep last night, out in the open somewhere, secure from collisions? I wish we could get some good cold, wet weather instead of the heat. He may be watching me now. He went close to the window. Something rapped smartly against the brickwork over the frame and made him start violently back. I'm getting nervous, said Kemp. But it was five minutes before he went to the window again. Must have been a sparrow, he said. Presently he heard the front door bell ringing and hurried downstairs. He unbolted and unlocked the door, examined the chain, put it up and opened cautiously without showing himself. A familiar voice hailed him. It was Adya. "'Your servant's been assaulted, Kemp,' he said round the door. "'What?' exclaimed Kemp. "'Had that note of yours taken away from her. "'He's close about here. Let me in.' Kemp released the chain and Adya entered through as narrow an opening as possible. He stood in the hall, looking with infinite relief at Kemp refastening the door. Note was snatched out of her hand, scared her horribly. "'She's down at the station. Hysterics. He's close here. "'What was it about?' Kemp swore. What a fool I was, said Kemp. I might have known. It's not an hour's walk from Hinton Dean. Already? What's up? said Adya. Look here, said Kemp, and led the way into his study. He handed Adya the invisible man's letter. Adya read it and whistled softly. And you? said Adya. Proposed a trap, like a fool, said Kemp, and sent my proposal out by a maidservant. To him. Adya followed Kemp's profanity. It'll clear out, said Adya. Not he said Kemp. A resounding smash of glass came from upstairs. Adya had a silvery glimpse of a little revolver half out of Kemp's pocket. It's a window, upstairs, said Kemp, and led the way. There came a second smash while they were still on the staircase. When they reached the study, they found two of the three windows smashed, half the room littered with splintered glass, and one big flint lying on the writing table. The two men stopped in the doorway, contemplating the wreckage. Kemp swore again, and as he did so, the third window went with a snap like a pistol, hung, starred for a moment, and collapsed in jagged, shivering triangles into the room. "'What's this for?' said Adya. "'It's a beginning,' said Kemp. "'There's no way of climbing up here?' "'Not for a cat,' said Kemp. "'No shutters?' "'Not here. All the downstairs rooms... hello.' Smash, and then whack of boards hit hard coming from downstairs. "'Confound him! That must be... "'Yes, it's one of the bedrooms. "'He's going to do all the house, but he's a fool. "'The shutters are up and the glass will fall outside. "'He'll cut his feet.' "'Another window proclaimed its destruction. "'The two men stood on the landing, perplexed. 
I have it, said Adya. Let me have a stick or something, and I'll go down to the station and get the bloodhounds put on. That ought to settle him. They're hard by, not ten minutes. Another window went the way of its fellows. You haven't a revolver? asked Adya. Kemp's hand went to his pocket, then he hesitated. I haven't one at least to spare. I'll bring it back, said Adya. You'll be safe here. Kemp, ashamed of his momentary lapse from truthfulness, handed him the weapon. Now for the door, said Adya. As they stood hesitating in the hall, they heard one of the first-floor bedroom windows crack and clash. Kemp went to the door and began to slip the bolts as silently as possible. His face was a little paler than usual. You must step straight out, said Kemp. In another moment, Adya was on the doorstep and the bolts were dropping back into the staples. He hesitated for a moment, feeling more comfortable with his back against the door. Then he marched upright and square down the steps. He crossed the lawn and approached the gate. A little breeze seemed to ripple over the grass. Something moved near him. Stop a bit, said a voice, and Adya stopped dead and his hand tightened on the revolver. Well, said Adya, white and grim and every nerve tense. Oblige me by going back to the house, said the voice, as tense and grim as Adya's. Sorry, said Adya, a little hoarsely, and moistened his lips with his tongue. The voice was on his left front, he thought. Suppose he were to take his luck with a shot. What are you going for? said the voice. And there was a quick movement of the two and a flash of sunlight from the open lip of Adya's pocket. Adya desisted and thought, Where I go, he said slowly, is my own business. The words were still on his lips when an arm came round his neck. His back felt a knee and he was sprawling backward. He drew clumsily and fired absurdly, and in another moment he was struck in the mouth and the revolver rested from his grip. He made a vain clutch at a slippery limb, tried to struggle up and fell back. Damn, said Adya. The voice laughed. I'd kill you now if it wasn't the waste of a bullet, he said. He saw the revolver in mid-air, six feet off, covering him. Well, said Adya, sitting up. Get up, said the voice. Adya stood up. Attention, said the voice, and then fiercely, don't try any games. Remember, I can see your face if you can't see mine. You've got to go back to the house. He won't let me in, said Adya. That's a pity, said the invisible man. I've got no quarrel with you. Adya moistened his lips again. He glanced away from the barrel of the revolver and saw the sea far off, very blue and dark under the midday sun, the smooth green down, the white cliff of the head, and the multitudinous town. And suddenly he knew that life was very sweet. His eyes came back to this little metal thing hanging between heaven and earth six yards away. What am I to do? he said sullenly. What am I to do? said the invisible man. You will get help. The only thing for you is to go back. I will try, but if he lets me in, will you promise not to rush the door? I've got no quarrel with you, said the voice. Kemp had hurried upstairs after letting Adya out, and now crouching among the broken glass and peering cautiously over the edge of the study windowsill, he saw Adya stand parleying with the unseen. Why doesn't he fire? whispered Kemp to himself. Then the revolver moved a little and the glint of the sunlight flashed in Kemp's eyes. He shaded his eyes and tried to see the source of the blinding beam. Surely, he said, Adya has given up the revolver. Promise not to rush the door, Adya was saying. Don't push a winning game too far. Give a man a chance. You go back to the house. I tell you flatly, I will not promise anything. Adya's decision seemed suddenly made. He turned towards the house, walking slowly with his hands behind him. 
Kemp watched him, puzzled. The revolver vanished, flashed again into sight, vanished again, and became evident on a closer scrutiny as a little dark object following Adya. Then things happened very quickly. Adya leapt backward, swung around, clutched at this little object, missed it, threw up his hands and fell forward on his face, leaving a little puff of blue in the air. Kemp did not hear the sound of the shot. Adya writhed, raised himself on one arm, fell forward, and lay still. For a space, Kemp remained staring at the quiet carelessness of Adya's attitude. The afternoon was very hot and still. Nothing seemed stirring in all the world save a couple of yellow butterflies chasing each other through the shrubbery between the house and the road gate. Adya lay on the lawn near the gate. The blinds of all the villas down the hill road were drawn, but in one little green summer house was a white figure, apparently an old man, asleep. Kemp scrutinised the surroundings of the house for a glimpse of the revolver, but it had vanished. His eyes came back to Adya. The game was opening well. Then came a ringing and a knocking from the front door that grew at last tumultuous, but pursuant to Kemp's instructions the servants had locked themselves into their rooms. This was followed by a silence. Kemp sat listening and then began peering cautiously out of the three windows, one after another. He went to the staircase head and stood listening uneasily. He armed himself with his bedroom poker and went to examine the interior fastenings of the ground-floor windows again. Everything was safe and quiet. He returned to the Belvedere. Adya lay motionless over the edge of the gravel just as he had fallen. Coming along the road by the villas were the housemaid and two policemen. Everything was deadly still. The three people seemed very slow in approaching. He wondered what his antagonist was doing. He started. There was a smash from below. He hesitated and went downstairs again. Suddenly the house resounded with heavy blows and the splintering of wood. He heard a smash and the destructive clang of the iron fastenings of the shutters. He turned the key and opened the kitchen door. As he did so, the shutters split and splintering came flying inward. He stood aghast. The window frame, save for one crossbar, was still intact, but only little teeth of glass remained in the frame. The shutters had been driven in with an axe, and now the axe was descending in sweeping blows upon the window frame and the iron bars defending it. Then suddenly... It leapt aside and vanished. He saw the revolver lying on the path outside, and then the little weapon sprang into the air. He dodged back. The revolver cracked just too late, and a splinter from the edge of the closing door flashed over his head. He slammed and locked the door, and as he stood outside he heard Griffin shouting and laughing. Then the blows of the axe with its splitting and smashing consequences were resumed. Kemp stood in the passage trying to think. In a moment, the invisible man would be in the kitchen. The door would not keep him a moment, and then... A ringing came at the front door again. It would be the policeman. He ran to the hall, put up the chain, and drew the bolts. He made the girl speak before he dropped to the chain, and the three people blundered into the house in a heap, and Kemp slammed the door again. The invisible man, said Kemp. He has a revolver with two shots left. He's killed Adya, shot him anyway. Didn't you see him on the lawn? He's lying there. Who? said one of the policemen. Adja, said Kemp. We came in the back way, said the girl. What's that smashing? asked one of the policemen. He's in the kitchen, or will be. He has found an axe. Suddenly the house was full of the invisible man's resounding blows on the kitchen door. The girl stared towards the kitchen, shuddered, and retreated into the dining room. Kemp tried to explain in broken sentences. They heard the kitchen door give. This way, said Kemp, starting into activity, and bundled the policeman into the dining-room doorway. 
Poker, said Kemp, and rushed to the fender. He handed the poker he had carried to the policeman and the dining room one to the other. He suddenly flung himself backward. What? said one policeman, ducked and caught the axe on his poker. The pistol snapped its penultimate shot and ripped a valuable Sidney Cooper. The second policeman brought his poker down on the little weapon as one might knock away a wasp and sent it rattling to the floor. At the first clash, the girl screamed, stood screaming for a moment by the fireplace and then ran to open the shutters, possibly with an idea of escaping by the shuttered window. The axe receded into the passage and fell to a position about two feet from the ground. They could hear the invisible man breathing. "'Stand away, you two, he said. "'I want that man, Kemp.' "'We want you.' said the first policeman, making a quick step forward and wiping with his poker at the voice. The invisible man must have started back and he blundered into the umbrella stand. Then, as the policeman staggered with the end of the blow he had aimed, the invisible man countered with the axe. The helmet crumpled like paper and the blow sent the man spinning to the floor at the head of the kitchen stairs. But the second policeman, aiming behind the axe with his poker, hit something soft that snapped. There was a sharp exclamation of pain, and then the axe fell to the ground. The policeman wiped again at vacancy and hit nothing. He put his foot on the axe and struck again. Then he stood, poker clubbed, listening intently for the slightest movement. He heard the dining room window open and a quick rush of feet within. His companion rolled over and sat up with the blood running down between his eye and ear. "'Where is he?' asked the man on the floor. "'Don't know. I've hit him. He's standing somewhere in the hall, unless he slipped past you, Dr Kemp, sir.' Pause. "'Dr Kemp?' cried the policeman again. The second policeman began struggling to his feet. He stood up. Suddenly the faint pad of bare feet on the kitchen stairs could be heard. "'Yep!' cried the first policeman, and incontinently flung his poker. It smashed a little gas bracket. He made as if he would pursue the invisible man downstairs, then he thought better of it and stepped into the dining room.' Dr. Kemp, he began, and stopped short. Dr. Kemp's a hero, he said, as his companion looked over his shoulder. The dining room window was wide open, and neither housemaid nor Kemp was to be seen. The second policeman's opinion of Kemp was terse and vivid. Chapter 28. The Hunter Hunted Mr. Helus, Mr. Kemp's nearest neighbour among the villa holders, was asleep in his summer house when the siege of Kemp's house began. Mr. Helus was one of the sturdy minority who refused to believe in all this nonsense about an invisible man. His wife, however, as he was subsequently to be reminded, did. He insisted upon walking about his garden just as if nothing was the matter, and he went to sleep in the afternoon in accordance with the custom of years. He slept through the smashing of the windows, and then woke up suddenly with a curious persuasion of something wrong. He looked across at Kemp's house, rubbed his eyes, and looked again. Then he put his feet to the ground and sat listening. He said he was damned, but still the strange thing was visible— the house looked as though it had been deserted for weeks after a violent riot. Every window was broken, and every window, save those of the Belvedere study, was blinded by the internal shutters. I could have sworn it was all right. He looked at his watch twenty minutes ago. He became aware of a measured concussion and the clash of glass far away in the distance. And then, as he sat open-mouthed, came a still more wonderful thing. The shutters of the drawing-room windows were flung open violently, and the housemaid in her outdoor hat and garments appeared struggling in a frantic manner to throw open the sash. Suddenly a man appeared beside her, helping her. Dr. Kemp. 
In another moment, the window was open, and the housemaid was struggling out. She pitched forward and vanished among the shrubs. Mr. Helis stood up, exclaiming vaguely and vehemently at all these wonderful things. He saw Kemp stand on the sill, spring from the window, and reappear almost instantaneously, running along a path in the shrubbery, and stooping as he ran, like a man who evades observation. He vanished behind a laburnum, and appeared again clambering over a fence that abutted on the open down. In a second he had tumbled over and was running at a tremendous pace down the slope towards Mr. Helis. "'Lord!' cried Mr. Helis, struck with a thought. "'It's that invisible man-brute! It's right, after all!' With Mr. Helis, to think things like that was to act, and his cook, watching him from the top window, was amazed to see him come pelting towards the door at a good nine miles an hour. There was a slamming of doors, a ringing of bells, and the voice of Mr. Helis bellowing like a bull. Shut the doors, shut the windows, shut everything. The invisible man is coming. Instantly, the house was full of screams and directions and scurrying feet. He ran himself to shut the French windows that opened on the veranda. As he did so, Kemp's head and shoulders and knee appeared over the edge of the garden fence. In another moment, Kemp had ploughed through the asparagus and was running across the tennis lawn to the house. "'You can't come in,' said Mr. Healer, shutting the bolts. "'I'm sorry. I'm very sorry if he's after you, but you can't come in.' Kemp appeared with a face of terror close to the glass, rapping and then shaking frantically at the French window. Then, seeing his efforts were useless, he ran along the veranda, vaulted the end, and went to hammer at the side door. Then he ran round by the side gate to the front of the house, and so to the hill road. And Mr. Healer, staring from his window, a face of horror had scarcely witnessed Kemp vanish, ere the asparagus was being trampled this way and that by feet unseen. At that, Mr. Helis fled precipitately upstairs, and the rest of the chase is beyond his purview, but as he passed the staircase window he heard the side gate slam. Emerging into the hill road, Kemp naturally took the downward direction, and so it was he came to run in his own person the very race he had watched with such a critical eye from the Belvedere study only four days ago. He ran it well, for a man out of training, and though his face was white and wet, his wits were cool to the last. He ran with wide strides, and wherever a patch of rush ground intervened, wherever there came a patch of raw flints, or a bit of broken glass shone dazzling, he crossed it and left the bare, invisible feet that followed it to take what line they would. For the first time in his life, Kemp discovered that the hill road was indescribably vast and desolate, and that the beginnings of the town far below at the hillfoot were strangely remote. Never had there been a slower or more painful method of progression than running. All the gaunt villas, sleeping in the afternoon sun, looked locked and barred. No doubt they were locked and barred by his own orders, but at any rate they might have kept a lookout for an eventuality like this. The town was rising up now, the sea had dropped out of sight behind it, and the people down below were stirring. A tram was just arriving at the hillfoot. Beyond that was the police station. Was that footsteps he heard behind him? Spurt. The people below were staring at him, one or two were running, and his breath was beginning to soar in his throat. The tram was quite near now, and the jolly cricketers was noisily barring its doors. Beyond the tram were posts and heaps of gravel, the drainage works. He had a transitory idea of jumping into the tram and slamming the doors, and then he resolved to go for the police station. In another moment he had passed the door of the Jolly Cricketers and was in the blistering far end of the street with human beings around him. The tram driver and his helper, arrested by the sight of his furious haste, stood staring with the tram horses unhitched. Further on the astonished features of navvies appeared above the mounds of gravel. 
His pace broke a little, and then he heard the swift pad of his pursuer and leapt forward again. "'The Invisible Man!' he cried to the navvies, with a vague indication gesture, and, by an inspiration, leapt to the excavation and placed a burly group between him and the chase. Then, abandoning the idea of the police station, he turned into a little side street, rushed by a greengrocer's cart, hesitated for the tenth of a second at the door of a sweetstuff shop, and then made for the mouth of an alley that ran back into the main hill street again. Two or three little children were playing here, and shrieked and scattered by his apparition, and forthwith doors and windows opened and excited mothers revealed their hearts. Out he shot into Hill Street again, three hundred yards from the tramline end, and immediately he became aware of a tumultuous vociferation and running people. He glanced up the street towards the hill. Hardly a dozen yards off ran a huge navvy, cursing in fragments and slashing viciously with a spade, and hard behind him came the tram conductor with his fists clenched. Up the street others followed these two, striking and shouting. Down towards the town men and women were running, and he noticed clearly one man coming out of a shop door with a stick in his hand. "'Spread out! Spread out!' cried someone. Kemp suddenly grasped the altered condition of the chase. He stopped and looked round, panting. "'He's close here!' he cried. "'Form a line across!' He was hit hard under the ear and went reeling, trying to face round towards his unseen antagonist. He just managed to keep his feet, and he struck a vain counter in the air. Then he was hit again under the jaw and sprawled headlong on the ground. In another moment, a knee compressed his diaphragm, and a couple of eager hands gripped his throat, but the grip of one was weaker than the other. He grasped the wrists, heard a cry of pain from his assailant, and then the spade of the navvy came whirling through the air above him and struck something with a dull thud. He felt a drop of moisture on his face. The grip at his throat suddenly relaxed with a convulsive effort. Kemp loosed himself, grasped a limp shoulder, and rolled uppermost. He gripped the unseen elbows near the ground. "'I've got him!' screamed Kemp. "'Help! Help! Hold! He's down! Hold his feet!' In another second there was a simultaneous rush upon the struggle, and a stranger coming into the road suddenly might have thought an exceptionally savage game of rugby was in progress, and there was no shouting after Kemp's cry, only the sound of blows and feet and heavy breathing. Then came a mighty effort, and the invisible man threw off a couple of his antagonists and rose to his knees. Kemp clung to him in front like a hound to a stag, and a dozen hands gripped, clutched, and tore at the unseen. The tram conductor suddenly got the neck and shoulders and lugged him back. Down went the heap of struggling men again and rolled over. There was, I'm afraid, some savage kicking. And suddenly a wild scream of, Mercy! Mercy! that died down swiftly to a sound like choking. Get back, you fools, cried the muffled voice of Kemp, and there was a vigorous shoving back of stalwart forms. He's hurt, I tell you. Stand back. There was a brief struggle to clear a space. And then the circle of eager faces saw the doctor kneeling, as it seemed, fifteen inches in the air and holding invisible arms to the ground. Behind him, a constable gripped invisible ankles. "'Don't you leave go of him,' cried the big navvy, holding a bloodstained spade. "'He's shamming!' "'He's not shamming,' said the doctor, cautiously raising his knee. "'And I'll hold him.' His face was bruised and already going red. He spoke thickly because of a bleeding lip. He released one hand and seemed to be feeling at the face. The mouth's all wet, he said, and then, good God. He stood up abruptly and then knelt down on the ground by the side of the thing unseen. There was a pushing and shuffling, a sound of heavy feet as fresh people turned up to increase the pressure of the crowd. 
People now were coming out of the houses. The doors of the Jolly Cricketers stood suddenly wide open. Very little was said. Kemp felt about, his hand seeming to pass through empty air. "'He's not breathing,' he said. And then, "'I can't feel his heart. His side... ugh!' Suddenly an old woman, peering under the arm of the big navvy, screamed sharply. "'Looky there!' she said, and thrust out a wrinkled finger. And looking where she pointed, everyone saw, faint and transparent as though it was made of glass, so that veins and arteries and bones and nerves could be distinguished, the outline of a hand, a hand limp and prone. It grew clouded and opaque even as they stared. "'Hello,' cried the constable. "'Here's his feet are showing.' And so, slowly, beginning at his hands and feet and creeping along his limbs to the vital centres of his body, that strange change continued. It was like the slow spreading of a poison. First came the little white nerves, a hazy grey sketch of a limb, then the glassy bones and intricate arteries, and then the flesh and skin, first a faint fogginess, and then growing rapidly dense and opaque. Presently they could see his crushed chest and his shoulder, and the dim outline of his drawn and battered features. When at last the crowd made way for Kemp to stand erect, there lay, naked and pitiful on the ground, the bruised and broken body of a young man about thirty. His hair and brow were white, not grey with age, but white with the white of albinism, and his eyes were like garnets. His hands were clenched, his eyes wide open, and his expression was one of anger and dismay. "'Cover his face,' said a man. "'For God's sake, cover that face!' Three little children, pushing forward through the crowd, were suddenly twisted round and sent packing off again. Someone brought a sheet from the Jolly Cricketers, and having covered him, they carried him into that house. And there it was, on a shabby bed in a tawdry, ill-lighted bedroom, surrounded by a crowd of ignorant and excited people, broken and wounded, betrayed and unpitied, that Griffin, the first of all men to make himself invisible, Griffin, the most gifted physicist the world has ever seen, ended in infinite despair, his strange and terrible career. The Epilogue So ends the story of the strange and evil experiments of the Invisible Man. And if you would learn more of him, you must go to a little inn near Port Stowe and talk to the landlord. The sign of the inn is an empty board, save for a hat and boots, and the name is the title of this story. The landlord is a short and corpulent little man, with a nose of cylindrical proportions, wiry hair, and a sporadic rosiness of visage. Drink generously, and he will tell you generously of all the things that happened to him after that time, and of how the lawyers tried to do him out of the treasure found upon him. When they found they couldn't prove whose money was which, I'm blessed, he said, if they didn't try to make me out of blooming treasure trove. Do I look like a treasure trove? And then a gentleman gave me a guinea a night to tell the story at the Empire Music, all just to tell him in my own words, barring one. And if you want to cut off the flow of his reminiscences abruptly, you can always do so by asking if there weren't three manuscript books in the story. He admits there were, and proceeds to explain with asseverations that everybody thinks he has them, but bless you, he hasn't. The invisible man it was who took him off to hide him when I cut and ran for Port Stowe. It's that Mr Kemp put people on with the idea of my having them.
and then he subsides into a pensive state, watches you furtively, bustles nervously with glasses, and presently leaves the bar. He is a bachelor man. His tastes were ever bachelor, and there are no women folk in the house. Outwardly he buttons, it is expected of him, but in his more vital privacies, in the matter of braces, for example, he still turns to string. He conducts his house without enterprise, but with eminent decorum. His movements are slow, and he is a great thinker, but he has a reputation for wisdom and a respectable parsimony in the village, and his knowledge of the roads of the south of England would beat Cobbett. And on Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, all the year round, while he is closed to the outside world, and every night after ten, he goes into his bar parlour, bearing a glass of gin faintly tinged with water, and having placed this down, he locks the door and examines the blinds, and even looks under the table. And then, being satisfied of his solitude, he unlocks the cupboard, and a box in the cupboard, and a drawer in that box, and produces three volumes, bound in brown leather and places them solemnly in the middle of the table. The covers are weather-worn and tinged with an algal green, for they once sojourned in a ditch and some of the pages have been washed blank by dirty water. The landlord sits down in an armchair, fills a long clay pipe slowly, gloating over the books the while. Then he pulls one towards him and opens it, and begins to study it, turning over the leaves backwards and forwards. His brows are knit, and his lips move painfully, Hex, little two up in the air, cross and a fiddle-dee-dee. Lord, what a one he was for intellect. Presently he relaxes and leans back and blinks through his smoke across the room at things invisible to other eyes. Full of secrets, he says. Wonderful secrets. Once I get the haul of them, Lord, I wouldn't do what he did. I'd just, well, he pulls at his pipe. So he lapses into a dream, the undying, wonderful dream of his life, and though Kemp has fished unceasingly, no human being save the landlord knows those books are there, with the subtle secret of invisibility and a dozen other strange secrets written therein, and none will know of them until he dies. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. I do regular stories and classic poems just for my patrons over on Patreon, so if you're interested in that, or just want to support The Well Told Tale, please do consider visiting patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. That's all for this time. I'll be back next week with a classic short story from Philip K. Dick. I hope you can join me.